Chapter Four, Part Six of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shanna in Washington, D.C. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One, by Charles Mackay. The Alchemists, Part Six. Dennis Zacare. Autobiography, written by a wise man who was once a fool, is not only the most instructive, but the most delightful of reading. Dennis Zacare, an alchemist of the sixteenth century, has performed this task, and left a record of his folly and infatuation in pursuit of the philosopher's stone, which well repays perusal. He was born in the year 1510, of an ancient family in Guinea and was early sent to the university of bordeaux under the care of a tutor to direct his studies unfortunately his tutor was a searcher for the grand elixir and soon rendered his pupil as mad as himself upon the subject with this introduction we will allow denis lecaire to speak for himself and continue his narrative in his own words i received from home says he the sum of two hundred crowns for the expenses of myself and master but before the end of the year all our money went away in the smoke of our furnaces. My master, at the same time, died of a fever, brought on by the parching heat of our laboratory, from which he seldom or never stirred, and which was scarcely less hot than the arsenal of Venice. His death was the more unfortunate for me, as my parents took the opportunity of reducing my allowance and sending me only sufficient for my board and lodging, instead of the sum I required to continue my operations in alchemy. To meet this difficulty and get out of leading strings, I returned home at the age of twenty-five, and mortgaged part of my property for four hundred crowns. This sum was necessary to perform an operation of the science, which had been communicated to me by an Italian at Toulouse, and who, as he said, had proved its efficacy. I retained this man in my service, that we might see the end of the experiment. I then, by means of strong distillations, tried to calcinate gold and silver, but all my labor was in vain. The weight of the gold I drew out of my furnace was diminished by one half since I put it in, and my four hundred crowns were very soon reduced to two hundred and thirty. I gave twenty of these to my Italian, in order that he might travel to Milan, where the author of the receipt resided and asked him the explanation of some passages which we thought obscure. I remained at Toulouse all the winter, in the hope of his return, but I might have remained there till this day if I had waited for him, for I never saw his face again. In the succeeding summer there was a great plague, which forced me to quit the town. I did not, however, lose sight of my work. I went to Cahors, where I remained six months, and made the acquaintance of an old man, who was commonly known to the people as the philosopher a name which, in country places, is often bestowed upon people whose only merit is that they are less ignorant than their neighbors. I showed him my collection of alchemical receipts, and asked his opinion upon them. He picked out ten or twelve of them, merely saying that they were better than the others. When the plague ceased, I returned to Toulouse, and recommenced my experiments in search of the stone. I worked to such effect that my four hundred crowns were reduced to one hundred and seventy. That I might continue my work on a safer method, I made acquaintance in 1537 with a certain abbe, 
who resided in the neighborhood. He was smitten with the same mania as myself, and told me that one of his friends, who had followed to Rome in the retinue of Cardinal d'Armagnac, had sent him from the city a new receipt which could not fail to transmute iron and copper, but which would cost two hundred crowns. I provided half this money, and they obeyed the rest, and we began to operate at our joint expense. As we required spirits of wine for our experiments, I bought a ton of excellent vending and yuck. I extracted the spirit and rectified it several times. We took a quantity of this, into which we put four marks of silver and one of gold that had been undergoing the process of calcination for a month. We put this mixture cleverly into a sort of horn-shaped vessel with another to serve as a retort, and placed the whole apparatus upon our furnace to produce congelation. This experiment lasted a year, but, not to remain idle, we amused ourselves with many other less important operations. We drew quite as much profit from these as from our great work. The whole of the year 1537 passed over without producing any change whatever. In fact, we might have waited till doomsday for the congelation of our spirits of wine. However, we made a projection with it upon some heated quicksilver, but all was in vain. Judge of our chagrin, especially of that of the abbe, who had already boasted to all the monks of his monastery that they had only to bring the large pump which stood in a corner of the cloister, and he would convert it into gold. But this ill luck did not prevent us from persevering. I once more mortgaged my paternal lands for four hundred crowns, the whole of which I determined to devote to a renewal of my search for the great secret. The abbe contributed the same sum, and with these eight hundred crowns I proceeded to Paris, a city more abounding with alchemists than any other in the world, resolved never to leave it until I had either found the philosopher's stone or spent all my money. This journey gave the greatest offense to all my relations and friends, who, imagining that I was fitted to be a great lawyer, were anxious that I should establish myself in that profession. For the sake of quietness I pretended at last that such was my object. After traveling for fifteen days, I arrived in Paris on the ninth of January, 1539. I remained for a month almost unknown, but I had no sooner begun to frequent the amateurs of the science, and visited the shops of the furnace-makers, than I had the acquaintance of more than a hundred operative alchemists, each of whom had a different theory and a different mode of working. Some of them preferred cementation, others sought the universal alkahest or dissolvent, and some of them boasted the great efficacy of the essence of emery. Some of them endeavored to extract mercury from other metals, to fix it afterwards, and, in order that each of us should be thoroughly acquainted with the proceedings of the others, we agreed to meet somewhere every night and report progress. We met sometimes at the house of one, and sometimes in the garret of another, not only on weekdays, but on Sundays and the great festivals of the church. Ah, one used to say, if I had the means of recommencing this experiment, I should do something. Yes, said another, if my crucible had not cracked, I should have succeeded before now. While a third exclaimed, with a sigh, If I had but a round copper vessel of sufficient strength, I would have fixed mercury with silver. There was not one among them who had not some excuse for his failure. But I was deaf to all their speeches. I did not want to part with my money to any of them, remembering how often I had been the dupe of such promises. 
a greek at last presented himself and with him i worked a long time uselessly upon nails made of cinnabar or vermilion i was also acquainted with a foreign gentleman newly arrived in paris and often accompanied him to the shops of the goldsmiths to sell pieces of gold and silver the produce as he said of his experiments i stuck closely to him for a long time in the hope that he would impart his secret he refused for a long time but exceeded at last on my earnest entreaty and i found that it was nothing more than an ingenious trick i did not fail to inform my friend the abbe whom i had left at toulouse of all of my adventures and sent him among other matters a relation of the trick by which this gentleman pretended to turn lead into gold the abbe still imagined that I should succeed at last, and advised me to remain another year in Paris, where I had made so good a beginning. I remained there three years, but notwithstanding all my efforts, I had no more success than I had had elsewhere. I had just got to the end of my money, when I received a letter from the abbe, telling me to leave everything, and join him immediately at Toulouse. I went accordingly, and found that he had received letters from the king in Navarre, grandfather of henry the fourth this prince was a great lover of philosophy full of curiosity and had written to the abbe that i should visit him at pau and that he would give me three or four thousand crowns if i would communicate the secret i had learned from the foreign gentleman the abbe's ears were so tickled with the four thousand crowns that he let me have no peace night or day until he had fairly seen me on the road to pau I arrived at that place in the month of May, 1542. I worked away and succeeded according to the receipt I had obtained. When I had finished to the satisfaction of the king, he gave me the reward that I expected. Although he was willing enough to do me further service, he was dissuaded from it by the lords of his court, even by many of those who had been most anxious that I should come. He sent me then about my business, with many thanks, saying that if there was anything in his kingdom which he could give me, such as the produce of confiscations or the like, he should be most happy. I thought I might stay long enough for these prospective confiscations, and never get them at last, and I therefore determined to go back to my friend the abbe. I learned that on the road between Pau and Toulouse there resided a monk who was very skilful in all matters of natural philosophy. On my return I paid him a visit. He pitied me very much, and advised me, with much warmth and kindness of expression, not to amuse myself any longer with such experiments as these, which were all false and sophistical, but that I should read the good books of the old philosophers, where I might not only find the true matter of the science of alchemy, but learn also the exact order of operations which ought to be followed. I very much approved of this wise advice, but before I acted upon it, I went back to the Abbe of Toulouse, to give him ale account of the eight hundred crowns which we had had in common, and, at the same time, share with him such reward as I had received from the King of Navarre. If he was little satisfied with the relation of my adventures since our first separation, he appeared still less satisfied when I told him I had formed a resolution to renounce the search for the philosopher's stone. The reason was that he thought me a good artist. For our eight hundred crowns, there remained but one hundred and seventy-six. When I quitted the abbe, I went to my own house with the intention of remaining there, till I had read all the old philosophers, and of them proceeding to Paris. I arrived in Paris on the day after All Saints, of the year one thousand five hundred and forty-six. 
and devoted another year to the assiduous study of great authors. Among others, the Turbo Philosophorum of the good Trevisan, the Remonstrance of Nature to the Wandering Alchemist by Jean de Mont, and several other of the best books. But, as I had no right principles, I did not well know what course to follow. At last I left my solitude, not to see my formal acquaintance, the adepts and operators, but to frequent the society of true philosophers. Among them I fell into still greater uncertainties, being in fact completely bewildered by the variety of operations which they showed me. Spurred on, nevertheless, by a sort of frenzy or inspiration, I threw myself into the works of Raymond Lully and of Arnold de Villeneuve. The reading of these and the reflections I made upon them occupied me for another year, when I finally determined on the course I should adopt. I was obliged to wait, however, until I had mortgaged another very considerable portion of my patrimony. This business was not settled until the beginning of Lent, 1549, when I commenced my operations. I laid in a stock of all that was necessary, and began to work the day after Easter. It was not, however, without some disquietude and opposition from my friends who came about me, one asking me what I was going to do, and whether I had not already spent money enough upon such follies. Another assured me that, if I bought so much charcoal, I should strengthen the suspicion already existing, that I was a coiner of base money. Another advised me to purchase some place in the magistracy, as I was already a doctor of laws. My relations spoke in terms still more annoying to me, and even threatened that, if I continued to make such a fool of myself, they would send a posse of police officers into my house, and break all of my furnaces and crucibles into atoms. I was wearied almost to death with this continued persecution, but I found comfort in my work, and in the progress of my experiment, to which I was very attentive, and which went on bravely from day to day. About this time, there was a dreadful plague in Paris, which interrupted all intercourse between man and man, and left me as much to myself as I could desire. I soon had the satisfaction to remark the progress, in succession, of the three colors which, according to the philosophers, always prognosticate the approaching perfection of the work. I observed them distinctly, one after the other. The next year, being Easter Sunday, 1550, I made the great trial. Some common quicksilver, which I put into a small crucible on the fire, was, in less than an hour, converted into very good gold. You may judge how great was my joy, but I took care not to boast of it. I returned thanks to God for the favor he had shown me, and prayed that I might only be permitted to make such use of it as would redound to his glory. On the following day I went towards Toulouse to find the abbe, in accordance with a mutual promise, that we should communicate our discoveries to each other. On my way I called in to see the sage monk who had assisted me with his counsels, but I had the sorrow to learn that they were both dead. After this I would not return to my own home, but retired to another place, to await one of my relations, whom I had left in charge of my estate. I gave him orders to sell all that belonged to me, as well as movable as immovable, to pay my debts with the proceeds, and divide all the rest among those in any way related to me who might stand in need of it in order that they might enjoy some share of the good fortune which had befallen me. There was a great deal of talk in the neighborhood about my precipitate retreat. 
the wisest of my acquaintance imagining that, broken down and ruined by my mad expenses, I sold my little remaining property, that I might go and hide my shame in distant countries. My relative already spoken of, rejoined me on the first of July, after having performed all the business I had entrusted him with. We took our departure together, to see a land of liberty. We first retired to Lausanne in Switzerland, when, after remaining there for some time, we resolved to pass the remainder of our days in some of the most celebrated cities of Germany, living quietly and without splendor. Thus ends the story of Denis Zacare, as written by himself. He was not been so candid at its conclusion as at its commencement, and has left the world in doubt as to his real motives for pretending that he had discovered the philosopher's stone. It seems probable that the sentence he puts into the mouths of his wisest acquaintances was the true reason of his retreat, that he was, in fact, reduced to poverty, and hid his shame in foreign countries. Nothing further is known of his life, and his real name has never yet been discovered. He wrote a work on alchemy entitled The True Natural Philosophy of Metals. End of chapter 4, part 6. Recording by Jeanne in Washington, D.C.